love you. We love you. Glory be to God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen and amen. You may be seated if you can. If you can. Hey, good morning, North Greenville University. Uh, we're going to be spending a little bit of time together, so I figured it might be appropriate to introduce myself and give you a little bit of context of who I am. Now, let me say this. I plan on preaching today, amen? So this is just a warm-up to let you settle in, because we're about to start running, okay? Hey, my name is Philip. Um, I'm a pastor of a church called Radiant Church down in Charleston, South Carolina. It's an intentionally multi-ethnic church, which basically means our church needs to look like our city for reaching our city, which we'll talk about later. Um, but beyond that, um, I went to a very different college. Um, I graduated from a college, you might have heard of it, called the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. Uh, we did not have midweek chapel. Um, our, our midweeks were very different. And so um, although this may seem very normal to you, um, I want you to know how extraordinary it really is that during these years of college, you are not doing what I was doing, which is foolishness. Um, you are doing this. Whether you're being made to or not, you are still being exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ through song, word, and deed. And so um, but that's where I graduated from. Um, I went to seminary, spent a little time in the Marine Corps, got married, had a bunch of kids, and life is great, right? That's, that's kind of my story. I am a, a very proud father and husband. Um, y'all don't believe the hype. Get married, have kids. It's great. Um, it's great. Um, I waited too long because I was like, man, I heard all the horror stories of, you know, kids have ruined your life. But no, man, it, it really is good. Um, and I'm going to come to you not just as a, a pastor today, but even as a father today. Um, let me dive into the Word of God this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, you're going to use them today, so go ahead and pull them out or turn them on. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read a little bit of Scripture. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right on in. Just going to read the first three verses. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Um, if you are looking for a title for today's time, it would be simply this, make every effort. Um, it's not very clever, but hopefully after our time is over, it is very clear on what we are trying to do today. Let me pray. Uh, Father, God, I am in desperate need of you. God, I pray that you would just anoint this moment, that this would not be just the normal routine of the week, but that, Holy Spirit, you would do something supernatural through the preaching and heralding of your word, that you would make this text come alive in our ears, God. We would hear it today as if it was the first time and as if it was life itself. God, rain down on the hearts of the hearers today. God, I pray for every man, woman, and child in this place that doesn't know you but knows all about you. God, I pray that you would begin moving them right now out of death and into life in you. God, I pray for the believer who is trying to figure out his way, trying to figure out her way. God, I pray that you'd bring deep conviction and clarity with an abundance of comfort and encouragement. And God, I pray for the hard-hearted believer today that's heard nothing new, 
that sits in judgment over the word rather than sitting in submission to the word. I pray that you would soften their heart, that the spirit would be able to penetrate and bring fruit and bring life. And God, above all things, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the all-sufficient name of Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen and amen. In the vein of getting to know one another, I have a confession to make. Um, how many people have seen the movie Finding Dory? Right? Was that not the saddest movie you have ever seen in your life? Like, it was all fun and games. So like, that last 20 minutes, y'all know what I'm talking about? The seashells and the mom and dad, like... Y'all, I, I thought of myself as a pretty tough guy growing up, right? I did six years in the Marine Corps. I'm the youngest of five kids. I grew up hard, amen? When you're the youngest, when you're the youngest of three kids, you're spoiled. When you're the youngest of five kids, you're just overlooked. <laughs> parents, parents don't have the energy to spoil you after five. And so I'm the youngest of five kids. I'm used to fighting for everything in my life. Um, I went to a military college, spent time in the United States Marine Corps. I thought I was a pretty tough guy until I had kids, amen? Having kids, man, it'll make a punk out of the best of us. And so I cry at Thanksgiving commercials. I mean, those little uh, TikTok and Instagram videos of, like, the dads coming home from the military and surprising, like, I'm weeping. Real cry, like, walking out the room so my wife doesn't see me and think less of me weeping. And I watched Finding Dory, and I got to that part, and I just began to break. Uh, because being a father gives you a different perspective. Um, and you've experienced something similar, although I'll be a little bit differently. As you've grown up and matured in life, your perspective on things has changed. Some of you grew up in Christian households and heard the scriptures from an early age, but hearing it in middle school is different than hearing it in high school, isn't it? Hearing it in high school is different than hearing it in college, isn't it? And so I've gone through some transformative moments in my ability that the Word of God didn't change, but how it applied to my life has profoundly changed. And it's from that vantage point that I want to spend a little bit of time, along with Paul, urging you to do what is necessary. This world is not designed to get better. This world is not bent to become more unified and united. This world is not built and designed to become more morally palatable. It will continue in the trend of which it's headed, which you see on Twitter, which you see in the news, which you see in the destructive, deconstructive movement in Christian circles today, which you see in the liberal, progressive, and the uh, overly hard-hearted conservative circles. That will continue. And as a pastor... but. More importantly, as a father, I have a request to make. Before I make that request, I want to make sure that we are all on the same page. I'm aware that there are some Christian studies, brothers and sisters in the room. <laughs> I was wondering if y'all going to self-identify. Praise God for you. <laughs> so you are already sitting in judgment. I, I promise you, I wore a blazer for y'all. Um, this was... This was my appeal for credibility here. Um, I preached a few weeks ago in Jordans and a t-shirt at my church, um, but I put on a blazer for y'all so that y'all would know that what I'm saying is theologically accurate and true. Um, 
But for the rest of us, let me, let me just walk through the text real quick because although this isn't the first transition that Paul makes the therefore, um, he makes another one in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, which we'll talk about, this is a transition in thought. Most of us know that most of Paul's letters are kind of divided between doctrine and duty, theological foundation and practical application. And that's what's happening right here in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is making a transition from, I have laid down a theological case. In light of that case that I've made, here are my closing arguments. Here's my application. Here is the duty that's required from these theological truths. But I don't want to give us a responsibility without making sure that we are all on the same page and understanding. So flip through to Ephesians chapter 1 really quickly. We're going to walk through really quickly, almost... uh, too quickly, but I want to make sure that we are all starting with the same foundation that Paul is assuming at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. So Ephesians chapter 1 all the way through Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 is one of the hallmark passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. Theologians like John Calvin and John Wesley and John Piper um, have notably said that Ephesians, uh, Romans chapter 8 is one of the gemstones of all of Scripture. That if John Calvin said if he was on a deserted island and it could only take one page of Scripture, he would take Romans chapter 8 because it contains the, the great redemptive promises throughout all of Scripture packed into one place. Ephesians does something very similar right here. It just overwhelms us with a density of promises. There is very little mention of you or your activity or your responsibility in Ephesians chapters 1 and the first half chapter 2. It is almost all about God's preemptive design and work. Blessed is the God, our Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be what? Holy and blameless in love before him. I wish I could spend 30 minutes on this one verse, that before you did anything right or wrong, knowing that you would do more wrong than right, God chose you to be righteous. He predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Jesus doesn't need us. He wants us. Isaiah 53 says it gave him pleasure to crush his son for our iniquity. As a father, I don't understand how that can be true. I love my church, which I pastor. Some of these brothers and sisters I have walked through for with decades of life, and I wouldn't give up my son for any of them. And I would call that person who did a bad father, yet God's love is so incomprehensible, he calculated it to be a good thing to crush his son for me and for you. That's a love that we don't have a category for. To the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Most theologians would describe the first half of Ephesians as wealth. Over and over you see this idea of abundance, of overflow, of wealth, of riches in Christ Jesus. And if you're looking for how this applies to you, verse 7 answers the question, in him we have redemption through his blood. Oh, that word redemption. Oh, that word of buying back that which is old. You see, redemption is transaction language. 
Our debt, our sin has accrued a debt that we cannot pay. And so redemption is God himself purchasing our sin using the currency of the blood of Christ to buy us out of debt to slavery to sin and into sonship with him. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Our forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace, not the severity of our self-condemnation. We don't receive more forgiveness if we punish ourselves harder, if we feel worse about it, if we don't feel anything bad at all. No, the forgiveness is not predicated on our response or reaction to sin, but upon the riches of his grace. Verse 11, in him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined, that word again, according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. These truths are so glorious that Paul prays in verse 17 that the glorious Father would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? So that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance of the saints. Paul is saying, I am writing these things with great detail, but you have no opportunity or capacity to understand them unless the Holy Spirit illuminates your heart because it's too great for us to understand. And so he prays that we would begin to understand the things that he's articulating. And chapter 2 gets personal. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Yes, you who grew up in church. Yes, you who can't remember when you were an unbeliever because you were always a Christian in your own mind and you got saved early and baptized early and filled with the Holy Ghost and you've been in ministry ever since you were four years old. Even you were dead in your trespasses and sin. We all lived according to our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh. Verse 4, but God. See, if we was preaching at my church, the organ would have just kicked up right there. But that's all right. That's all right. But God, who is rich in mercy, once again, wealth, lavishness, overflow, rich in mercy, because of his great love, not because of our great repentance, that he had for us made us alive with Christ when we were dead in sin. You are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself, it's God's gift. We've heard these things before, have we not? Have we considered them recently? So chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, talks about this vertical, overwhelming wealth of riches that we have secured in Christ, planned by the Father, inherited by the power of the Spirit, sealing us into the day of final redemption. But the gospel is not yet complete because Jesus' blood paid for more than our individual reconciliation. So then, verse 11, the first, therefore, so then remember that at one time you Gentiles were in the flesh. Y'all know where I'm going, right? The dividing wall of hostility torn down in verse 14, for he is our peace, shalom, wholeness, not an absence of conflict, but a presence of him bringing wholeness to that which is missing broken. He is our peace who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new kainos man, not a successive progressive as in the newest model, but something that had never existed before altogether new man. 
for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, I don't have time to preach on Ephesians chapter 2, although Ephesians chapter 2 is worth preaching on. You see, the Jews thought that Christ came to make Judaism 2.0. That Jews had it mostly figured out right. We just need a, a little bit of help to get across the finish line. The Gentiles thought that they have to go through Judaism to get to Jesus. It was the first council. What the conversation was about is how Jewish do you have to be to get Jesus? And here comes Paul saying, no, 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 no. He made one new people out of Jews and Gentiles. We all have to lay down our cultures and ethnicities and religious practices down at the foot of the cross that all come to Jesus. So you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. You see, Jesus didn't just die to turn sinners into saints. If that's all he did, it should change nothing about our worship. See, that's worth shouting about, amen? But Jesus died to turn sinners into saints, into siblings. And now we are co-heirs. We are brothers and sisters in this thing. That means we've got to act like brothers and sisters in this thing. That, to me, is the imperative for the multi-ethnic church, but I'm not here to talk to you about that today. But Paul's not done in Ephesians chapter 3. In almost what seems like an impromptu tangent, Paul just breaks out. He begins saying, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, on your behalf, Gentiles, pause, assuming that you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave for me. And for the next several verses, he's going to take this tangent, but in so doing, reveals the mystery of Christ. That Galatians talks about, that Romans talks about, that Abraham heard in Genesis chapter 12, and we see consummated in Revelation chapter 7, he begins to peel back the layers of what was Jesus up to. This grace was given to me, verse 8, the least of all the saints to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. Again, wealth, riches, lavish, overflow, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Spoiler alert. What was Jesus up to? Verse 10. This is it right here. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heaven. In our English translations, we read that and missed it. But here's what Paul is doing. That word multifaceted or variegated, depending on translation, is a Greek word polypoikolos that Paul makes up and is only used one time in the New Testament, and it's right here, and it literally means multicolored. He's saying the plan all along was to bring people from every tribe, nation, and tongue together to worship around the throne and in the local assembly. That was the great mystery. That's why even in the Old Testament, Gentiles are included. Syrians are included. Those outsiders are included. Because that wasn't an interruption to the regularly scheduled Jewish program. No, that was the plan all along. For this reason, he goes back to his conversation, I pray again, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened in your inner being through his spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the width, the height, and the depths of God's love. And to know Christ's love, that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? You've got to experience it, and it's got to change you. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, Ephesians chapter 1, the Holy Spirit sealed in us, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, that's where we're picking up the conversation. The incalculable riches of Christ applied to the individual in Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. The incalculable riches of Christ's blood to create one new man out of many people. Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. The mystery of the gospel revealed, this multicolored mystery of the gospel revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 3. And the prayer that we would understand it, the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love, even though it surpasses our ability to understand in Ephesians chapter 3, and then we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, that was all introduction. That don't count against my time. <laughs> Therefore, I, the prison and the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling. Let me, this is my request, young people. Coming to you not as an expert, not as a theologian, but as a father who looks out into the world and looks into my home, and I have a deep well of sorrow. My oldest son is six years old. I am 36 years old. When my son needs truth the most in his late 20s and early 30s, odds are I will not be in the pulpit, but some of you will be. When my daughter, who is now one years old, is wrestling with the pressures of being a woman in a sexualized world, it won't be me being able to walk with her through those valleys. It'll be a woman at church, maybe one of you. When my middle son, who is so full of passion and energy, he wrestles with the brokenness of this world and what seems to be the insufficiency of the word of God to address it, it will not be me in the pulpit. It will be you. Paul spent at least two to three years with the Ephesus church. He writes this letter 10 years after he last wrote there, and he doesn't write as a detached theologian. No, he writes as someone who cares deeply about these people. He is on death row right now, and his thought is towards his brothers and sisters at Ephesus. He cares for them. He loves them. And that word, I, a prisoner of the Lord, is, is a metaphor because he's an actual prisoner now. But he doesn't see his physical chains as important. No, his constraint is the gospel of Jesus. He's like, I urge you. And that word urge sounds suggestive, but it's really not. He is begging, pleading. For these young leaders to walk worthy of the calling that they have received. And so here is my request, family. Not an exhortation, not telling you anything you don't know, 
but as a father who will be unable to pastor my children through the hardest moments of their life, when some of you will, I am pleading with you to take seriously the call. I, Lord willing, will be there for them, but I have learned to not count my days, to be grateful for every day. When my sons and daughters, when the sons and daughters, when your nephews and nieces need truth the most, it's beautiful to teach uh, Sunday school, uh, the three to five-year-olds and the four to five-year-olds and the six to nine-year-olds. It's hard work, but it's fun work, isn't it? You sing the songs, and you read the Bible stories, and they love it. Then comes teen ministry. Not quite as excited anymore, are they? Then comes college ministry. The questions are harder, aren't they? The questions are more accusatory, aren't they? There's a more anger, isn't there? In those years, it will be you brothers and sisters, who will be leading the church. In those years where the next generation needs truth the most, it will be you in the pulpits and in the pews and on the staff websites discipling the next generation into the truth of the gospel. And so I, along with Paul, as he pleads, I plead with you to live a life worthy of recalling. So what does that mean? It means that with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bear with one another in love. Let me spend just a few minutes breaking this down, and I'm going to get out your way. With all humility, can we make space for what we to believe deeply to be incomplete or wrong? Can you make room in your relationships to love people deeply who you disagree with strongly. What you believe today hopefully will not be what you believe 10 years from now. I'm not saying throw away the gospel. I'm saying that life should have taught you by now that you can be strongly held in your beliefs and be dead wrong. I am glad for sanctification. Amen? I'm glad for spiritual maturity. I'm glad I'm not the same person that I was when I got saved almost 20 years ago. When I got saved, I was a Pharisee. I was a hard-hearted Christian that if you don't pray like I pray, you don't pray at all. You don't read the Bible like I read the Bible, then you don't read the Bible at all. If you don't share the gospel as much as I share the gospel, then you don't love people at all. And I am glad God broke me from that. And he will break you. Humility makes room for that breaking to happen. Humility isn't compromise. Humility isn't backing down from the truth. Humility says, I don't yet know everything, and I'm willing to learn. Gentleness. Oh, gentleness. Gentleness says, when you see someone across the aisle, political, theologically, culturally, and you have a disagreement, it says, not only do I see how you could get there, because I have walked deeply with you, I have empathized and had conversations, and although I may still disagree, I can see how you got there. Not only does it say that, it also says, I can see how I could get there if it were not for the grace of God. 
I could see how I could believe what you believe if I had a different household setting, if I had a different theological environment, if I was raised in a different set of circumstances, I could see how I could get there where you are. And so I'm going to treat you like I wish somebody would treat me if I was in your shoes. Gentleness. With patience. You know what patience is? It's trust. Patience is simply trust. Trust that God would do what he said he was going to do. And I know at this stage of life, patience hasn't been tested or tried just yet. But oh my God, it will be. Oh, it will be. Patience, as you sit in the hospital bed with somebody you love, praying to God, biblically rich, theologically true prayers, and their condition is not improving. Patience as you disciple someone and love someone and pour into someone, and they turn away and walk away from the faith altogether. Patience with yourself, patience with your spouse, patience with the injustice of this world, knowing that the arc of justice might be long. But it is coming to a predestined end. Patience is trust in God, lavished on people. Bearing with one another in love. Now, this isn't a passive tolerance. I'll bear with you as mean I won't complain about you. I don't really like you. I don't want to choose to be around you, but I'll bear you in your foolishness. No, we're not talking about a bearing that's a passive tolerance. No, we're talking about a committed co-laboring with one another. We will not reach the lost in South Carolina if we only co-labor with people we agree with 100% of the time. There's 5 million people in South Carolina. 3.2 million don't attend a church anywhere on any given Sunday. We're not going to reach them if our tribe keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. We have got to find a way not just to tolerate difference, but to co-labor across difference. I know we're good Baptist folks in this building, but we got to find a way to work with Pentecostals. We got to find a way to learn from and work with charismatics. We got to find a way to work with the reformed and the unreformed and everybody else. If you can agree that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, we have got a common ground that can lead us to co laboring with one another together. Bearing with one another in Christ. Last verse, and then I'm done. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This, this is a really interesting, interesting thing. Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 seem to all but guarantee that this unity is already paid for. Because it was paid for by the blood of Jesus. And that credit is good everywhere. So what does this command even mean to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? When it seems like the unity of the Spirit has already been accomplished, the dividing wall of hostility torn down in Ephesians chapter 2, the prayer that the mystery of the gospel revealed in Ephesians chapter 3, the lavish wealth of the riches of Christ imputed to the believer in Ephesians chapter 1, what is left to be done? (laughs) Spend five minutes scrolling through Twitter and you'll see. What's left to be done? 
spend 10 minutes in mass media Christian evangelicalism, and you will see that there is still much left to be done. And here is what I'm pleading. I am pleading with you, brothers and sisters. Make every effort means that you will commit to do whatever it takes to maintain, to steward, to cultivate that which Christ has purchased. The cry of Moravian missions isn't just for global outreach. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That has been the rally cry of missions activity all around the world, but it's still true in America. And the question is, is, are we giving to Jesus the church that he bought? Is this what the blood of Jesus purchased a fractured, homogeneous, divisive, everybody knows what we're against and not what we're for, church. Is that all that Jesus' blood paid for? Or is that just all we're going to give him? Y'all, I have no idea the battles that you will have to fight. We are only a few years removed, myself and you in this room, but the world has changed drastically. You are being forced to answer questions that I didn't even get asked until seminary, and they were all hypothetical. You're forced to wrestle with cultural issues that used to just be what-if scenarios for the church. The present age in which you will do ministry will be harder than any time in American history. So I'm not saying I know what you should do. I'm saying, will you commit now to do whatever it takes to give Jesus Christ that which he paid for in your life and in your church? And will you settle for nothing less than what the blood of Jesus Christ bought? That's what it means to make every effort to keep that which has been purchased in the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Family, the, the world is supposed to sin. That's what it's supposed to do. That's not what keeps me up at night. The world is supposed to be more divided and fractured. That's what it's supposed to do. I don't lose sleep over that. The world is supposed to become more amoral. That's what it's supposed to do. But what grieves my heart is the church doesn't have an answer. And worse yet, the church is walking step in step in that direction. We continue to demonize those who we disagree with. We think unity is uniformity. We think disagreement is division, and we don't see a way out. And that's just what my generation is pastoring in. By the time you graduate, even if you graduate in a few weeks, the landscape will be harder. The problems will be bigger the spiritual warfare will be fiercer. And so in this time that you have at this university, at the church that you attend, in the home that you're a part of, with the Christian circles that you've been able to cultivate in this season, now is the time to decide that you will do what is necessary to give Christ what he purchased. Let me pray. Father, God, I pray for every man and woman in this room. God, I know that you have called some to vocational ministry, 
You have called some to global missions. You have called some to workplace kingdom work. Wherever you have called your people, God, I pray for them right now, God. I pray for this next generation, God. I don't know the battles that they will have to fight, the questions that they will have to answer, the world that they will inherit, and the ministry that will be necessary to reach lostness, God. But you do, God. God, I pray for them right now in the name of Jesus that you would give them a supernatural anointing to herald the good news of the gospel of Jesus in a hard culture, in an antagonistic culture. But we would do so with love and gentleness and humility and forbearance. That we would be known as a gentle, loving, truthful people. God, would you help through this next generation, through these men and women in this room, rewrite the narrative of the church of America? Help us to cling tightly to these truths and to live courageously in these times. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray all these things. And all God's people said, amen Amen and amen. Thank you for your time. Have a great morning.